Welcome to Tiny Insect, episode 1.18, the Taiping Testament. I'm going to start off this episode with a sort of correction. So over on the History of Fire podcast, Daniele recently finished a six-hour, three-part series on the Taiping Civil War. By contrast, this season of Tiny Insect has run for about 10 hours so far, and we're a long way from the end. Um, so I liked a lot of Daniele's work, and so I was a little intimidated, but I gave it a listen. And one thing that I immediately noticed was that I have been completely butchering Hong Xuquan's name beyond what's really responsible, even by my own low standards. I'd looked into how to pronounce it online when I started the show and listened to a Chinese history lecture to see how that professor had handled it. I thought that I was close enough to what I'd heard and went with it. However, after listening to Daniele and doing some more research, I have concluded that I really need to correct how I say it. Hopefully this won't be too confusing for you going forward. So I have been saying Hong Shiquan. It's more accurate to say Hong Shuquan, or something closer to that. So from now on, Hong Shiquan is Hong Shuquan. I went back and found that Chinese history lecture, and it is pronounced a bit closer to what I have been saying, but I went in the opposite direction. So um, the good news is that I think I've been doing okay on everyone else's names. I just messed up the most important one so far in the show. Anyway, going forward, I'm going to do my best to say it right, and hopefully it won't confuse you too much. Alright, on with the episode. From November 1844 to about mid-March 1847, Hong Xuquan lived with his family in Guanlubu, Guangdong province, far away from the god-worshipper communities that were growing up around Thistle Mountain. He had been gone for much of 1844, and had quite a bit of catching up to do with his wife, children, father, brothers, and other relatives such as his cousin, Hong Ringan. The village leaders offered him his old teaching job back, and Han accepted. Even the Son of God needed to make some money to support his family. Hong also kept very busy writing new religious tracts, a mix of poems, odes, and exhortations. These were collected and later published as the Taiping Testament. Hong wrote them with a mind to convince his fellow countrymen to abandon the demons that deceived them and to follow Shangdi. Much of his argument was based in the history of the three dynasties, the Xia, Shang, and Zhou. Rulers of these three dynasties ranged from probably mythical to ones we can verify in the archaeological record. In traditional Chinese historiography, these three dynasties stretched from around 2000 BCE to 249 BCE and are the subject of many of the most revered books in the Confucian classical catalog. There are major problems with this presentation from a modern historiographic perspective, but let's not get into those. What's important here is that Hong Xuquan was very familiar with all these stories, and considered long periods, especially the early Zhou, to be the zenith of Chinese statecraft and society. Hong pointed out that they also worshipped Shangdi as the one true god, the same god who had sent his son Jesus down to another of his peoples during the Han Dynasty. Han believed that China's ills could be traced back to when Shi Huang, the first Qin emperor, took the title Di on his own to become Qin Shi Huangdi. Di is usually translated as God, and so Hong thought that this blasphemed God. And for the following two millennia, the people were led astray, as subsequent imperial dynasties continued to co-opt the title of Di and claim God's glory for themselves. For Hong, 
This was a historical and theological argument, not just for overthrowing the Qing dynasty, but for launching a violent revolution to destroy the entire imperial project and to establish a kingdom where God's will would be made manifest on earth as it was in heaven, the Taiping Tianguo, the heavenly kingdom of great peace. The collection of texts published under the title of Taiping Testament is an eclectic mix. These documents were composed between 1845 and early 1847. While the collection wasn't published until the early 1850s, Hong Rengan wrote an essay describing Hong's activities during these years and specifically says that he composed the Taiping Testament at this time. There is some evidence that these texts were at least edited and updated later because there are references to the Old Testament and passages in the Bible that were not in Liang Fa's good words. It's possible that Hong had gotten a hold of a copy of the Bible from a representative of the Chinese Union during this period, but the Taiping Testament is missing a lot of stories and biblical passages that would become some of Hong's favorites after the point that we know he had a Bible. Hong made it a habit of editing many of his writings in subsequent years, so this would still be in character. If you're familiar with the surviving Taiping texts that have been translated into English, you might be saying to yourself, Mark, what's the Taiping Testament? Never heard of this. And you would be sort of correct. Franz Michael's two-volume collection is the only comprehensive set of Taiping texts published in English translation. It has nearly 400 texts spanning a thousand pages, including poems, political proclamations, letters, tax receipts, business licenses, and more. It's an amazing resource, and we'll be coming back to it again and again. However, however, it's also flawed to the point where basically every scholar who can do their own translations chooses to do so instead of using Michael's. And they often come out quite different. One reason for this may be that around 20 people worked to write these translations under Michael at the University of Washington in the 1860s, which I think led to more literal than subtle translations. But there's something else that I think is more important. Franz Michael brought a bad set of assumptions and biases to his work on the Taiping. In his accompanying history, called the Taiping Rebellion, he makes it pretty clear that he thinks the Taiping weren't quote-unquote real Christians, because they didn't follow his Protestant orthodoxy. He says things like the Taiping faith was derived from Christianity, instead of identifying it as Christian. He also writes that Hong Xuquan was, quote, a man who is clearly mentally ill, end quote, and that many other Taiping leadership, quote, used cruel religious hoaxes to assert authority, end quote. By the end of our story here, by the end of this season, you may agree or disagree with parts of this characterization. I don't think it's entirely indefensible. But reading through his history, you get the sense that Michael would never say things like this about other people who were famous for their religious experiences. Jesus, Muhammad, Joan of Arc, you know, those sorts of people. Michael does not consider the Taiping religious experience to be legitimate or really Christian, but just some sort of political expedience. In the language of modern psychology and medicine, many prophets and religious leaders probably were neurologically atypical or mentally ill. I don't think that's a particularly notable or helpful observation to make about the Taiping specifically. It doesn't help us understand why they would garner millions of followers and come as close as they did to completely toppling the Qing and establishing a permanent heavenly kingdom. Personally, I prefer Karl Kilkors' characterization of the Taiping faith as a localized Christianity, a concept that we'll come back to in the future. So, where possible, 
I defer to the translations of other scholars. In the case of the Taiping Testament, I'm following Thomas Riley, whose book, The Taiping Heavenly Kingdom, Rebellion and Blasphemy of Empire, I'm using for a lot of this episode. Michael calls the collection of texts from this period the Taiping Imperial Declaration. Riley writes that the words imperial declaration are identical to the words also used to translate the English word testament. Given the style and subject matter of these documents, I agree with him that the Taiping Testament is a better translation. The English phrase imperial declaration carries connotations that really aren't reflected in this collection. And while I wouldn't say it's particularly similar to the biblical testaments, it's much closer. Hong will publish his fair share of declarations, some of which were very imperial, and those are quite different in their composition and subject matter than the text here. The Taiping Testament begins with the Ode on the Origin of Virtue and the Saving of the World. It's written in verse and provides a broad outline of God-worshipper belief and righteous behavior, and implores the reader to join and follow Shangdi. To get a sense for the style, here's how it opens. Quote, the great origin of virtue is heaven. Let us reverently take heaven's way to arouse the multitudes of the virtuous. The way of heaven is to punish the licentious and bless the good. Repent while it is early. Be the first. End quote. Hong wrote that all good emanates from heaven. It is the way of heaven to punish the licentious, and only through good and upstanding behavior can a heavenly kingdom be established on earth. The sovereign god on high, Shangdi, rules over heaven. He is the creating spirit, and all originates with him. And any other being that claims the ability to create or answer prayers is usurping God and misleading his children. Chinese imperial ideology claimed for the emperor the exclusive right to worship heaven at the temple of heaven in Beijing, where he would perform rituals such as prostrating himself before the heavenly altar in the same manner that a filial man was supposed to prostrate himself at his father's funeral. The Qing emperors believed that as rulers, they, quote, represent heaven in shepherding the people, end quote. Imperial vocabulary was cluttered with references to heaven. The emperor's throne was the heavenly throne, which was located in his heavenly court, guarded by his heavenly soldiers. One of the emperor's titles was Tianzi, the son of heaven. Hong and the god-worshippers promised to fundamentally alter the relationship between the people and their father Shangdi by giving everyone the ability to directly worship God in heaven. Hong believed he was restoring this direct relationship from the time of the three dynasties. Of that time, he said, quote, Both princes and people, as one body, honored august heaven. During that time when the sovereigns honored God, nobles, scholars, and commoners all did the same. End quote. If the god-worshippers got their way, worship of heaven would no longer be exclusive to the emperor. Ideas about heaven and hell were ubiquitous in China, and the translators of Christian texts borrowed from this pre-existing vocabulary. However, the way in which Liang Fa and the Bible talked about heaven was new to Hong. These texts gave him a new perspective on the nature of heaven. In the Bible, for example, heaven was not just a place above the earth, where Shangdi resided. It was something that could be made manifest on earth. This was the kingdom of heaven, or heavenly kingdom. The phrase is only found in the book of Matthew, though kingdom of God is found in other books. While many other Christians consider kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God to be equivalent, for Hong and the God worshippers, 
the kingdom of heaven was special. Liang Fa introduced Tong to this phrase, Tiang Guo, and described how it has two meanings. First, it was the place where the souls of the righteous go after their bodies have died. But second, it was a community or congregation formed by those who believe in Jesus and worship Shangdi. Hong loved this idea. God had heaven where he would go after death. Until then, it was up to Hong and the God worshippers to establish a heavenly kingdom, heaven's will made real on earth. As it says in the first part of the Lord's Prayer, quote, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. End quote. In the book of Matthew, Jesus says, quote, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. End quote. Hong believed that, since it had been a long time since Jesus lived, it was now time for Jesus' younger brother to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth, just as his older brother had foretold. In the Chinese classics, heaven is a fundamental political and theological concept. Heaven gave birth to humankind and granted them intelligence. It also plays an active role in human affairs by imposing the mandate of heaven. This political ideology was the foundation of imperial legitimacy until the 20th century. The mandate of heaven says that the sovereign, called the son of heaven, ruled with heaven's blessing and was responsible for maintaining heaven's favor. If a ruling dynasty became inept, heaven showed its displeasure with natural disasters like fires and floods, or celestial signs like the appearance of a comet or an ominous alignment of the planets. Losing the mandate meant that it was heaven's will for the people to rise up and overthrow the ruling family and establish a new dynasty. Rule could thus legitimately pass out of one lineage and into another. A person powerful and ruthless enough to overthrow one sovereign was by definition legitimate, because otherwise heaven would not have allowed his success. Or, if a rebellion failed, then the ruler must still have heaven's blessing, and the signs had been misinterpreted. The mandate of heaven was a self-justifying, survival of the fittest political ideology that was tempered by Confucian values of virtue and responsibility which required the sovereign to provide for the well-being of his people. Hong's conception of heaven was as a real place, situated physically above the earth, that one could visit. This is best seen in the Taiping Heavenly Chronicle, which includes a description of Hong's visit to heaven in 1837. This is something we discussed back in episode 1.7. Though this text was written a bit later than the Taiping Testament, Heaven is portrayed consistently between the texts. The Taiping Chronicle says that Hong was carried to heaven on a sedan chair. There was dazzling, radiant light, which we're told was different from what we see on our mundane earth. People dressed in dragon robes and wore cornered hats, the dress of a high-level bureaucrat. Heaven was not metaphorical. In the Chronicle, Hong and Shangdi stood together and literally looked down on the earth to observe what was happening and discussed what needed to be done. Heaven had many levels, as God described how demons had invaded and occupied one of the levels. Heaven also consisted of many levels. For one example, God described how demons had invaded one of the levels and occupied it. Hong took his aspiration to found a heavenly kingdom and combined it with a concept that dated back to the first century BCE, Taiping. It was an ancient word, translated in English as either great or universal peace. This is where Hong got the name for what would become the Taiping Tianguo, the heavenly kingdom of universal peace. The idea of Taiping first became popular when it was embraced by the so-called Yellow Turban Uprising, 
I would call it a civil war, which lasted about 20 years between 185 and 205 CE. The leader of the Yellow Turbans preached a millenarian vision of escape from everyday miseries and to a new age he called the Great Peace Under the Yellow Heaven. From this war, the Han Dynasty emerged victorious, but mortally wounded, after an estimated 3 to 6 million deaths. The dynasty finally fell just 15 years later. One of the defining characteristics of God-worshipper belief was its uncompromising monotheism. The Taiping Testament is suffused with Hong's beliefs about God's singular divine nature. Hong believed that God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit were all important, but that God was clearly superior to the other two. He thought it was ridiculous to believe there was three persons in one, as he put it. Instead, he called the relationship between God and Jesus a blood-vein kinship relationship. He observed that Jesus the Savior only called himself Ju, or Lord, and not D. Just as a son has a special relationship with his father, but is decidedly not his father, so Hong believed that Jesus was not God. Hong Shiquan shared the same relationship with God as Jesus did. The Taiping Testament presented seven different behaviors that Hong believed were against God's will. We covered this in a previous episode. They were the commandments of the God worshippers until Hong read the full Bible and the chapter in the book of Exodus where Moses receives the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. Compared with the Ten, Hong's Seven Commandments were missing the first three. There is no God but God, don't make idols or worship them, and do not misuse the name of God. The fact that the Taiping Testament has the collection of Seven Commandments instead of the Ten from Exodus is one of the main reasons I don't think that Hong had access to the Bible while he was writing all this in Guanlubu. Upon Hong's return to Guangxi in 1847, with at least one copy of the Chinese translated Bible, the God worshippers immediately adopted the full Ten Commandments as a foundational principle of behavior and worship. Hong believed that all people were God's children, and thus all one family. He writes that the world is one family that was passed down from the time of Pangu to the three dynasties. Pangu was a legendary primordial being said to have assisted in the formation of the universe by separating heaven from earth and incorporating his body into the earth. This reference to Pangu in the Taiping Testament, like other allusions to the classics, was removed in later editions, probably to avoid accusations of violating strict monotheism. In another example, the first edition of the Taiping Testament talks about the Book of Filial Piety. In later editions, this was changed to just the filial way. The idea of a single, universal family was core to Hung's conception of the world and humanity's relationship to Shangdi. In the Taiping Testament, People honoring God are likened to children honoring their father. He could draw upon both Confucian and Christian traditions to support this. For example, he cited one of the classics, saying, quote, Thus the sages considered all under heaven to be one family, and constantly cherished the feelings that all people were our brothers. In the Bible and Good Words, Hong found passages such as Galatians 3, quote, For in Jesus Christ you are all sons of God through faith. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. End quote. Hung believed that the China of his time was much more riven with conflict and divided than it was in the time of the classics, where he read of a people united in purpose, where everyone received the basic food and clothing that they needed. Hong believed dysfunction was driven by divisions between people from different lineages, districts, and provinces. If people from different groups resented each other, 
Hong posited. Then, quote, how could they do otherwise than to insult each other, to wrest things from one another, to battle with each other, and to kill one another, and thus perish altogether? End quote. The solution, Hong believed, was for everyone to recognize that they are all Shangdi's children. United as one family of God worshippers, their world would be transformed. Quote, How can it be that this age, so full of insults and violations, fighting and killing, cannot in a day be changed into a world where the strong no more oppress the weak, the many overwhelm the few, the wise delude the simple, or the bold annoy the fearful? End quote. In another section, Hong lamented the state of his society, saying, The ways of the world are perverse and wicked. While the minds of men are intolerant and shallow, their loves and hates being all derived from selfishness. Hong identifies the problem as intolerant parochialism, quote, To love one's province at the largest or village at the smallest level means that they dislike the village or province that isn't their own and is ignorant of those beyond their own homes. Therefore, they love those of their own village, hamlet, or clan, and dislike those of other villages, other hamlets, and other clans. The loves and hates of the world being such, why shouldn't their views be narrow and their tolerance limited? End quote. According to Hong, this was not the case in the countries that worship Shangdi. Quote, Foreign nations, though far removed, are cared for and protected by the great God, and in China, which is near, it is also thus. In the world, there are many men, and they are all brothers. In the world, there are many women, and they are all sisters. Why, then, retain prejudices for this territory against that region? Why, then, entertain thoughts of your swallowing up me, or my overwhelming you? End quote. For Hong, the fact of a universal family did not imply complete social equality, as some contemporary Anglo-American Protestants might have argued. Hong believed God's family was like the large family lineages that dominated social life in Guangdong and Guangxi. Your place in the family hierarchy determined your obligations to other members and theirs to you. Women, children, and younger siblings owed deference and reverence to their husbands, parents, and older siblings, who in turn owed material support, instruction in life, and protection. Hong's vision of universal brotherhood and sisterhood with all people of the earth living in peace under the one true God, is a utopian vision that he took very seriously. It will inspire the revolutionary restructurings of social relationships that the Taiping will undertake among their members in the early 1850s. It was also the ideological foundation upon which the Taiping built their foreign policy with the likes of the British, French, and Americans. Unfortunately for Hong and the Taiping, it wasn't a vision that their fellow Christians shared when it came to the fight over control of China. And what of the non-believers? Were they also part of God's family? Hong made it clear that up to a certain point, there was a path back to God in redemption. However, God's patience was limited. And at some point, the idolaters and sinners passed a point beyond which they could not be redeemed. The zealous idolatry displayed by Hong and the God-worshippers which we discussed last episode, was fueled by this belief that all humans are God's children. Why should such intelligent and noble creatures, which Hong believes we must be as children of God, debase themselves, worshipping idols made of wood, clay, or stone? Why worship mere things? Hong says that they do this because they've been deluded by spirits and devils. He identifies the greatest malevolent demon 
as Yan Liu, the snake that corrupted Adam and Eve, also known as King Yan. He was the Lord of Diyu, which means something like the realm of the dead or hell. It literally means earth prison. It was the place where souls go after death. King Yang originally came from Buddhist traditions, and depictions of Yan Luo in Diyu were extremely common in the 19th century. King Yan was shown sitting in judgment of souls, prescribing set punishments that had to be completed before they could be returned to the world through reincarnation. In the Taiping Testament, Hong explains why the people of China turned away from worshipping Shangdi and toward demons like King Yan. Quote, On examining China's historical records, we find that from the time of Pangu down to the three dynasties, both sovereigns and subjects together honored and worshipped the great god. End quote. Some states and people, particularly the predecessors of the Miao people, worshipped demons. But it was not until Duke Cheng of Qin that things really went off the rails. Cheng, who lived in the 7th century BCE, was the ancestor of Qin Shi Huangdi. According to Hong, it was Cheng who, quote, first introduced the calamitous beliefs in spirits, immortals, and strange things. He worshipped Shun of Yu, sacrificed to Yu the Great, and in the extremity of his mad perverseness sent men out onto the seas in search of the genie. End quote. Hong provides an exhaustive list of other rulers who also turned from God to worship spirits and demons. He blames Buddhist and Taoist practitioners for deluding people to sell them prayers and false rituals to fatten their own purses. The title of Di was first used as an imperial title by the Qin Emperor, Qin Shi Huangdi. Huangdi is usually translated as emperor, but a more literal translation renders Huang as glorious or supreme and Di as ruler or god. Except for the five mythical emperors from the mists of history, the rulers before the Qin took the title of Wang, or King. Hong thought that the appropriation of titles like Di, which belong to God, to be blasphemy of the worst kind. He writes, quote, The great God is the only Di. The monarchs of this world may be called Wang. Even Jesus the Savior, the Son of God, is only called our Lord. In heaven above and on earth below, among men, which is greater than Jesus? Even Jesus is not called Di. Who then dares assume the designation of Di? End quote. The answer when Hong wrote this was the Qing Daoguang Emperor. In the Taiping Testament, Hong describes how he wants to create a society like the one described in the Book of Rights, when quote, those who had and those who had not were mutually compassionate. In calamity, they aided one another. Doors were not barred. On the road, no one picked up lost articles. Men and women walked on different paths and those selected for office were of supreme virtue, end quote. Confucius had called this the grand union or the way of heaven. Under the way of heaven, there would be sufficient provisions, quote, for the aged until their death, employment for the able-bodied, and the means of growing up the young, showing kindness and compassion to widows, orphans, childless men, and those who were disabled by disease, so they may be sufficiently maintained. Males had their proper work, and women had their homes. End quote. This is another example of how, during his time in Guanlubu, Hong still drew directly from the tradition of Confucian social values. This passage, 
with its explicit references to the Book of Rites and Confucius, were removed in later editions of the Taiping Testament. However, that didn't mean that Hong's ambitions for his heavenly kingdom were reduced. Many of Hong's aspirations for social change were shared by 19th century liberal, progressive, and socialist movements in Europe and the United States. And Christian writings, especially portions of the New Testament, provided ample theological justification for these kinds of social policies. Hong drew upon both the classics and the Bible to support his views. The core ideas that would define Hong's religious and political ideology are all in the Taiping Testament, though many would continue to evolve in the coming years. God wanted Hong to found a heavenly kingdom on earth, as prophesied by his older brother, Jesus Christ. There is only one God, and to use his name in any other context was blasphemy. All people are God's children, and as such, have mutual obligations to one another, which Hong defines using a combination of Christian and Confucian ethics. In the Taiping Testament, Confucius is presented as a wise sage to whom Hong can turn for evidence to bolster his arguments. This changed shortly after the Testament was written, and references to him were removed in later editions. The Taiping Testament laid the foundation for what will become the Taiping Political Project. Unlike secret societies like the Heaven and Earth Society, Hong didn't want a restoration of the Ming, but he wanted to bring back the best of government and society as he imagined it existed before Qin Shi Huangdi usurped God's title. For Hong, dynasties like the Ming had offended God just as much as the Qing did, but in the Taiping Testament, Hong doesn't make the implications of his ideals explicit. He doesn't call for the overthrow of the Qing, but the reasons why someone might call for the overthrow of the Qing are all there. It didn't take Hong much longer to make that leap. By the end of summer 1847, Hong declared himself a heavenly king and began to openly challenge Qing legitimacy. I don't think we'll ever be able to say for certain, but the catalytic event seems to have been Hong's trip to Guangzhou in March 1847 and what he experienced studying for several months with the American missionary, Ishikar Roberts. I've mentioned this trip several times, and next episode, we'll follow Hong to Guangzhou to see how meeting foreign Shangdi worshippers and getting his hands on Karl Gutzloff's Bible would affect both Hong and the future of China. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a five-star rating and review. Ratings and reviews will help others find the show. If you have feedback for the show, comments, or questions, you can find me on Twitter and lots of other social media. I'm at TinyInsectPod. Thanks for listening.